the doctor's not just going to, you know, oh, take this and you'll be fine. Although I'm sure sometimes that does happen. Instead, they're going to do a thorough examination. They're going to look underneath the surface to see what's really going on. And that's exactly what behavioral scientists do when they go into an organization or when they work with a business or a brand. They say, okay, what's happening here? Um, who are the customers? Who are the employees? What behaviors are they engaging currently that, you, that aren't considered ideal? Uh, why are they engaging in those behaviors? And then alternatively, what can we do? How can we structure comms or messaging or the experience overall in such a way so that we, here's a word we use often, nudge. So we nudge them away from this route towards this route. Welcome to the Business Ownership Podcast, brought to you by Awareness Strategies, helping you navigate the waters between entrepreneurship and ownership. Hey there, peeps. This is Michelle Nedelec, and I'm super glad that you're here with us today because I'm here with my most amazing guest, Nick. Nick, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Excited to chat with you. Yeah, we're going to have fun. So give us a highlight of who you are and what you do for business. Who am I? I am Nick Hobson. Uh, I'm an academic, a, a former recovering academic uh, <laughs> who made the great escape out of the, uh, the academy after about 10 years finishing my PhD and lecturing and doing some of that stuff. And then what, the, what some of uh, our, my colleagues say is I, I sold out and I left, I left the world of, of research and academia and, uh, and went into business for myself and with others and have been hopping around you know, from place to place over the last 10 years or so. But by way of training us, I am a, I am a social psychologist, behavioral scientist. Um, and what I do is I bring that lens into the business world, into um, why people do what they do and why they think the way they think and how they feel and how all of those things shape consumer preferences, customer experience, employee experience, organizational and culture development. So basically what I, in short, what I like to say I do is I bring behavioral science or BS into business success. Really? Do we need more? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? The good, it's the good BS though. Oh, um, okay. So in all, in all my sort of different, yeah, movings around and, and comings and going, it's, 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 uh, although I will hop around in different domains and have different target audiences, the, the golden thread that runs through is that at the end of that transaction, at the end of that interaction, at the end of that, you know, that, product or service is is a relationship is a human um and so we bring that that level of science and and rigor and thought to uh to how we think about what we do very cool so when it comes to the business side of things i'm going to assume it's mostly marketing but do you also address like internal communications and change management and all that kind of fun stuff or what do you e honestly everything yeah everything i'd say it's it's a fair mix between the like some, like let's call it change management but you know influencing and getting people to do things that you want them to do on the internal side so on the organizational side so if there's some sort of like transformation or development um how do you get leaders along for the ride how do you um, have this, the, the equal mix of kind of top-down, not control, but top-down movement within the organization to make an, a new initiative and to push it out? And then with all the right comms and, and messaging, but also the, the more organic, how do you support that with the more organic bottom-up development from, from your employee base? That's the first. And then the second is more on the, say, outside-facing uh, part of the business. So your 
your marketing and, and customer experience. So how do you craft your messaging? How do you craft your packaging? How do you engage with your customers on a very basic like you know, customer experience, uh, customer support type of level to um, to get them to do what you want them to do? Because ultimately that's what we're doing, but in an, eth in an ethical way. Uh, I think we come from a time typical sort of marketing and ad agency business and even on the employee side as well where it was much more coercive or it was much more top-down heavy it was much more exploitative and we're coming to a, a turn in the marketplace and in the workplace where we want to see the other person on that side whether it's a customer whether it's an employee whether it's a leader as a human a human that has preferences a human that has every right to make a choice so we hope to get them to make the right choice that is good for them, that serves them, and also simultaneously serves the serves the business. So I don't think people realize how much behavioral science affects business, which kind of cracks me up because it's kind of like, well, are there people involved? Well, then there's behavioral change. <laughs> there, there's going to exactly. be some influence going on here. Um, yeah. So talk to me about how the breadth and width of how much you have seen um my let's call it mindset affect business which is kind of a um obscure question but let's go start with there <laughs> sure sure where to begin i think <clears throat> there's 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 folks like myself who are trained behavioral scientists um and who have the the training who have the theories who have the language and the frameworks and we can you know that that just serves as a lens for us to see the world and to see the world of business and organizations and customers and marketplaces there are many plenty of people out there who don't have that phd training you don't need that there's plenty of people who just get it almost like on an intuitive level maybe they have like a psych undergrad degree or maybe they don't maybe it just sort of comes to them and they understand the value of seeing it through that same lens. So I'll give an example just within, the, within that ad, ad, ad agency and marketing space of the, let's call it the Mad Men era. Like if you watch that show, or if you read those books, if you get the, the gist of what was happening then, they were coming up with very creative messaging to try and convince that end buyer. Um, were they psychologists and behavioral scientists with a PhD on their name? No, probably not. And yet they were very good because they thought like a psychologist. I almost think of them as like folk psychologists and folk behavioral scientists. Um, so that was, that was one area where, although they didn't have that formal background, they were doing well. Now, where the kind of the science part comes in is it says, look, you may have an intuition, you may have decades, years of a wealth of experience and specialization, and you're good at your job, but let's add a little bit more rigor. Let's add this, essentially, let's add the scientific methodology on top of that intuition so that when you come to the table and you have an idea and you have a thought, instead of being like, well, yeah, we're going to do it because I'm the boss and I think it's a great idea. Instead, you frame it as I have a hypothesis. And let's go out and test that hypothesis against maybe a competing or an alternative set of hypotheses. Go get some data, you know, A-B test, quick pilot. And then what you're doing is you're pairing the really, the, the, the years of wisdom and intuition and expertise 
with the robustness of, of data collection and testing. And it's the best sort of combination of both. So that might not have answered your question, um, but that's that's how I see it as the as the best sort of combination of people who who have the years of experience, and then somebody like me, a nerd nerdy guy, comes in and says, "Well, let's think about it this way," and it you know yields the best the best outcomes and results. Well, and I often compare it to you can hire your best person and promote them into management, but they often don't know why they do the things that they do. Whereas somebody with a degree in it knows exactly why they're doing what they're doing and how they're doing it and how to get somebody else to do it. That's what they've studied. So yes. a lot of people will, you know, just because Tiger Woods is awesome at golf won't make him a great coach. And just because somebody wasn't good at golf doesn't make them bad at coaching. In fact, they could be hmm. some of the world's best coaches. Uh, and there's a totally different skill set there between being good at something and knowing mm. why you're good at something. That's um, a great metaphor. Yeah, really, so really when like it... Uh, and by the way, if you don't like any of my questions, feel free to answer whatever you like. <laughs> I'm totally good with that. Normally, I, normally <laughs> yeah. I preface that in the green room and it's all good. Um, okay. So yeah, when it, when it comes to what you're doing in a business, do you, do you go in with a certain kind of framework that you're working on and going, hey, let's kind of look at this? Or do you walk in and go, okay, what are you guys doing and what are you trying to accomplish? And, and it's more organic. The model of behavioral science has become context is king or context is everything is usually what we say. Um, and the reason for that is because humans are complex as it turns out. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Put that in your show notes. Um, <clears throat> so while we have the same brain that shares the same evolutionary trajectory, uh, we have the same psychology, we have the same sets of emotions. The way in which those things play out and manifest when a customer makes a decision, when an employee does something, when a leader acts, um, all of that will be dependent on the context that's at play. Um, and it will also depend on who you are as an individual. So while we are all human, we all have our own individual unique personality traits that all, when you take the traits with the context, and you pair that, what that means is there's no short answer for anything. There's no um, one-stop shop that will allow you to optimize for human behavior. We as behavioral scientists go in and what we typically do is we conduct an audit or a, or a diagnosis, very much like how a medical doctor would do the same. If, if a patient comes into the doctor's office and says, you know, I just don't feel healthy, the doctor's not just going to you know, oh, take this and you'll be fine. Although I'm sure sometimes that does happen. Instead, they're going to do a thorough examination. They're going to look underneath the surface to see what's really going on. And that's exactly what behavioral scientists do when they go into an organization or when they work with a business or a brand. They say, okay, what's happening here? Um, who are the customers? Who are the employees? What behaviors are they engaging currently that, you, that aren't considered ideal? Uh, why are they engaging in those behaviors? And then alternatively, what can we do? How can we structure comms or messaging or the experience overall in such a way so that we, here's a word we use often, nudge. So we nudge them away from this route towards this route in a way that's not, again, coercive or exploitative, that gives them the option to choose. So I'll give you one funny example. Um, the Google offices, uh, and I've been to the Toronto one, 
here in Canada, they have the kitchen and the kitchenettes and it's kind of known, like you go there and it's, it's just like, I'm not gonna say world-class food, but pretty damn good food that you can go and, and eat your meals and have your snacks throughout the day. And in the kitchenettes that are on every floor, they have shelves of, of different snack items and drinks. And the Google powers it be, they don't want their people eating junk food. It's not healthy. It's not healthy for individuals. It's not probably contributes to less productivity, I guess, I don't know. So what do you do is, well, you don't remove the junk food. You still give that as an option. Sometimes it's nice to have a, a, a handful of, of M&Ms and it's just a, a small little delight. So what they did is they put the M&Ms and the Coca-Cola on the bottom shelf and they put them in um, opaque steel containers with labels. So it said M&Ms. But then at eyesight, which is easier to grab and right in front of you, sort of the ideal shelf space, was clear containers that had the healthy snack options like almonds. And they've run several tests. And what they found is that, yeah, you, when you nudge somebody in the particular direction to choose the healthy option, they're going to choose that more often over the snack, the, the, un, the unhealthy snack. So that's just one example of how you can set up the employee experience, but you can do the same with the customer experience and say retail or in an, in an e-commerce environment, you can set up the, the experience in such a way so that you influence and nudge that end user, that end audience member towards what you want them to, to engage with. Right. So when it comes to kind of the span of your work, are you working as well with kind of swipe copy and landing pages or with speeches for IPOs? What's the breadth and width? Um, it's more... Uh, it's it's honestly quite everything. Um, I would say landing pages is, is a is a low hanging fruit for the psychologists and behavioral scientists. Um, but a lot of what I do is in product design. So um, how do we build a a dashboard, for example, that somebody can go in, engage with, grab some high level insight, learn about some data about their organization, their business, or their brand and then take those insights away to action on. Um, now, the way you structure, design, build, present that dashboard will matter a great deal. If you just slap everything together and it's too much information, it's information overload. The human brain can only, pro yes, it's quite amazing, this, this little machine we have in our head, but it's also very limited. And it can only take in a finite amount of information. So you as the person who's designing that dashboard or if it, whatever sort of product, um, you have to think to yourself and you have to ask yourself and you're, you have to talk to your designers and your creators and you have to talk to your strategists and your dev team and engineers when you build it and say, what do we want to present first? In what color? How many colors? How much copy? Does the copy go above or does it go below? All of that is answered by what we know about how you have a human cognition and how the brain and mind processes information in different ways. That, and then I'd also say with like uh, various applications, various applications that are out in the marketplace to get us to do something, diet, exercise, lose weight, mindfulness or a meditation app, like you name it, all of those things are trying to encourage an ideal or an optimal behavior. And the way in which you structure that experience, that product, that application, those visuals, will all you know make it more likely that you see the behavior you want or not the opposite effect so when it comes to your audience is there a a different flow of how somebody accepts kind of information so 
in in kind of general marketing terms is like hey calling all entrepreneurs do you have issues with you know sleeping at night because your bills aren't getting paid and then you go down kind of this funnel of emotions mm -hmm. to the facts and the figures and then the the decision making process would you say that that should be different for kind of techies versus um counselors versus librarians or does everybody kind of follow that uh, patterning yeah no back to context is everything and, and individual traits is everything it, 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 it's better to have not not perfectly but as, as close to possible as individualized copy or experiences because what you engage with what you process is gonna be different from what i would pref my preference for how i process information so one example is with um what we psychologists, behavioral scientists call um, pre prevention and promotion fit. So we like to come up with these random words and terms. But basically what it is, is um, we humans and all animals actually all sort of, even the simplest organisms like bacteria have these two fundamental drives. One is to approach or promote, which is like you're leaning physically, behaviorally, you're leaning forward and you're approaching gains or rewards and you're consuming and taking those in. The second style is what's called avoidance or prevention. And that's you're leaning back, you're guarded, and you're not gaining rewards, you're preventing failure or you're preventing setback. Every individual will have a, a bias or a leaning towards promotion or prevention. So an example, if um, just because it's summer here and everyone cares so much about, well, not everyone, but a lot of people care about their lawn and their how green their lawn is, and you go into Home Depot and you, you go into Walmart or wherever and you want to get some grass seed or some weed killer or whatever it might be. Um, let's say you're a promotion mindset and I'm a prevention mindset. You will respond more favorably to a product packaging or copy or messaging that says, do you want the best possible, the most lush green grass? Yes, you pick up that product and you buy it. I, on the other hand, as a, as a neurotic academic, who's guarded and defensive, I'm going to be more tuned in and my attention is gonna be more drawn to the packaging and the messaging that says, do you want to prevent your lawn from looking horrible with all these weeds? Yes, absolutely. And there's plenty of evidence out there to suggest that those two different motivational styles or personality styles will matter. So when it comes to say, copy on a landing page or in an email flow, with data, big data, and of course, AI, what we can start to do is actually tune the messaging and tune the experience in the right way to the right person so that they respond more favorably, so that they respond and engage um, in, an, in an ideal way. Very cool. So who would you say right now is your ideal client that you love to work with or that comes to you the most often? Right now, I would say, I would say financial services and retail within the work that we do at Apex. So Apex, which I haven't mentioned yet, Apex is a, is a behavioral science trained AI system uh, and platform. And what it does is it helps to prioritize the right experiences for your customers. And the tool itself and the platform is agnostic in terms of industry and vertical, but we typically find a great deal of fit and resonance with uh, with financial services and and um, and retail in particular, but also also like healthcare and and, and education, 
Um, so I'd say I'd say those are the two. What matters more is less the industry or the vertical, and more the the person or the people on that team. Um, and this comes back to psychology, of course. When you're in a big organization, as we know, sometimes it's you're stymied by the bureaucracy and the, and the, just the, the sheer size of that organization. And that limits, you know, innovation and creative thought. So when we come with our solution, which is a little bit different, which is a little bit new, which can be scary, um, you have to get the right individual at the table or across the Zoom call for them to be like, hmm, this is different. This is a little bit scary, but I, I can understand and appreciate why it's important to have something that, that is novel and new. Um, so what we find in that business that we that we have in the product apex that we bring to market is, like I said earlier, it's not it's not about the the industry. It's more about the people who are having those conversations with us. All right, so talk to me more about the about that technology and how it works. Yeah, in short, <clears throat> we like to think about every interaction that happens between a customer and a brand or customer and a product as a relational experience. Um, my business partner often says it's not B2B, it's not B2C, it's not D2C, it's H2H, human to human. So back to my previous point, at the end of every transaction of the end of every experience is going to be a human, a human that has desires, preferences, emotions, behaviors. So in that product, we bake that into the very beginning of the dashboard and the platform that we've built using this behavioral science back to AI tool. And essentially, the, the, my favorite part of the product is what we call the mind map. So after our clients and their teams will walk through, they get a score. This is how well you're doing. It's their APEC score. Then the, the score will say exactly, okay, what, why is your score the, what it is? And, and that produces the mind map. And the mind map, if you can imagine for those people who are listening, is a almost like a two by two. So you have your x-axis, your horizontal x-axis, and your vertical y-axis. On the vertical y-axis is the extent to which um, our clients' customers, so end users in the marketplace, desire certain experiences. Do they want them to be reliable? Do they want them to be functional? Do they want them to, you know, something that's more like on the rational kind of side of things? Or do they want them to be empathetic? Do they want to be joyful and happy? So more on the kind of like affective or emotional side of things. And what the AI tool does is it basically plots it from they want it, they want it, they don't want it at all, sorry, or they want it a great deal. I really desire my experiences to be joyful or empathetic. Plotted against an x-axis, the horizontal, which is the extent to which that brand or that business is delivering on those experiences. So you can imagine in that visual space, if I really want my experiences to be empathetic, but you're not delivering them, you're top left. And top left is a, is a place you do not want to be because that's the red zone. Those are opportunities to improve. Um, and it's almost like I, I, the metaphor, the analogy that I equated to is, is that of a human relationship. So if you have a married couple and one of them says, look, in order to get the ideal outcome of this relationship and of this marriage, I need this thing and that partner is not meeting it, that's the red zone. That's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for disaster for humans. It's a recipe for disaster for brands and products. And so what that then does is our mind map provides a roadmap. It's a roadmap for our clients to say, well, this is an underserved 
factor in our business. Our customers are saying they need it, they desire it, but we're not delivering. We're underperforming, we're underdelivering on it. That there, we can tie a KPI to it. We can tie a strategic roadmap. We can set that direction and then we can watch it improve over time and track its, its movement, track the improvement in the APEX score, and then track the, the improvement in, in uh, ultimately in revenue and profitability. Nice. So when you're working with somebody, does it depend on the size of the business or how um, experienced the business is, like how many past clients they might have had that they can put through the system, depending on what they're looking for? Because um, I'm, I'm expecting that most people would, well, <laughs> that was a gross assumption. Most people would be willing to do this proactively, but that was kind of silly because nobody does anything proactively. So maybe they're not. <laughs> It's a great question. Um, we have a, a combination of working with like third-party like sampling uh, providers. So yeah. your Medallia or your Qualtrics or whatever whatever um, agency our clients work with, which is which is common. And oftentimes we go we 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 go to our clients through an agency uh, channel partner, and that's how we end up working with the clients that we do, as opposed to going direct to them. So those agencies will often have their 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 sampling um, tools and platforms, but what's really important, and this actually just came out real with respect to NPS, the creator of NPS, he said the surefirest way to bastardize the NPS score or any score for that matter is to get biased data, garbage in, garbage out. So when you present some sort of survey to a customer, who's going to be really keen to take the time to answer? those questions, two types of people, people who love you or people who absolutely hate you. And if you're, and, and usually it's the people who love you. So if, if that's the only subsample that you're getting, you're not getting the full picture of what people think about you or what their experience has been with that product, with, with your product service or with your brand overall. So when it comes to sampling, you have to be very, very, very careful that you're getting what we call a representative sample. So yet yeah, we're not, so if you have a, in the universe of your customers, if you have 200,000 customers, we can't sample them all. That's insane and that's silly. But what we can do is we can put in certain guardrails and certain practices to get 100. Our tool can actually run with 50 because of the AI allows for smaller sample sizes. But if you're only getting 50 or 100 of that 200,000 customer base, you better be damn sure that that 50 people is as representative of the larger 200,000 so that the insights you do find that you do action on are accurate, correct, true to your entire customer base. So when it comes to kind of, if somebody doesn't have the, the resources that they think they need and they come to you, it's like, well, how do I, how do I leverage if I have like, you know, might have 25 clients or my mom's here and she's extremely biased. How do, how do you, um, then kind of either leverage or expand that um, context into people that it should be. If it's just just a small, like a smaller, yeah, a really small, small sample and, set. Yeah, I mean, so my brain goes to something like Pong. And I go, how do you, how do you sample some, how do you take Pong to the world? And for those of you who don't know what Pong is, is a stupid game with little cardboard plastic things that you flick against each other and kids play it for hours paid it for hours and they spent millions of dollars on on getting the right little colors for it like it was a phenomenon that in the beginning 
had zero audience, zero application, zero, like, how would you know? That's a great question. Um, for us, I'll give you an example with, with Apex. So we do have a, a, a version or a sort of a segment of the product, which is like, um, like an untapped market, essentially. Usually you have to have some, you have to, you have to have a foundation to stand on to get enough data to then, you know, right. see yeah. and figure out what people want. Um, but one example we did is with a financial services company, a credit card company, and they were really looking to get some market share and to grab a new market share for a, a line of products that they had. And they had made the assumption that every, whether you have a, because everyone has a primary card and a, and a non-primary card, like a secondary card in your wallet and the question of wallet right. share. <laughs> Um, and they made the assumption that everyone makes the decision to, to have a primary card or a non-primary card, secondary primary card for the same reason. Like, it's just, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm making the same decision, right? Um, and what we actually found with Apex and digging in and doing some further uh, analytics insights work with them is that that decision-making process is totally different for primary and non-primary. When it comes to primary, it's much more functional and, and rational. When it comes to non-primary, it's much more emotional. It's much more just sort of intuitive and gut-hunchy kind of decision-making. So that allowed them to enter into, the, into this sort of white space, um, this new product with that information in hand. So although, yes, they didn't have any existing customers to sample, or maybe they had a very, very, very small number, we were still able to find out what's important to customers because going back to that mind map, if you remember that vertical axis is what people desire. So what do people want from a particular product experience when it comes to credit cards, when it comes to video games, when it comes, whatever the case may be. And what are the trends? What is the sort of, what's the zeitgeist in, in, in the society right now that's happening and what do people want? Once you have that information as a brand, then you can set your product roadmap if it's brand new, recognizing that people need this one thing above all else. Then you set off in, in that direction. Love it. So give us a, a, another example of a maybe a Cinderella story of one of your clients or a kind of one of the more interesting ones to you of some of the things that you've worked with. Yeah, let me think. Let me think that through. There was one. Um, Chili's, which is a, it's, I don't think it's huge in Canada, but, but it's obviously massive in, in the it's US. Massive. We don't have any around, around here, um, but we worked, we worked with them down in, in the US. And when we first engaged with them, they, they kept on sort of saying, okay, we, we need to know like what, what people desire within this, within this, this segment, within the, I don't think it's, is it fast food? I, I should know this. It's probably fast food, or maybe it's a little bit a tier above fast food. Yeah, when it goes to. it's, um, what would so you call Kelsey's? it? A convenient restaurant? And so it's. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> like, a little like, better than a McDonald's. Well, a lot better than McDonald's in my opinion, but um, okay. <laughs> it's kind of like the Earl's or the, I don't know if you guys have those in Hamilton. Yes, yes. <laughs> so that that's the the restaurant segment. Let's Let's yeah. call it whatever name that is. Um, and they were so focused on the overall segment and what their competitors were doing. Well, what's our competitor doing? We're going to match that. What are they doing? How are they doing? Okay, we're going to match that. And what our tool uncovered and what the insights found was that Chili's customers had a very different set of preferences, priorities, and expectations of Chili's that were 
that were vastly different from the overall market preferences in that space. So that was a sort of like aha moment, like our strategy and our operational requirements and changes should be shifted and in tune with what our customers, Chile's customers want, because what they desire is different from what everyone else desires overall. So don't pace. Yes. I mean, you obviously have to pay attention to the competitive landscape, but don't obsess so much over it that you're losing sight of over why people like you ultimately people are making a decision to go to Chili's or to engage with your brand or product or service over others because they like you. So double down on that. Um, and once they did that, they saw all sorts of really benefits that, um, that were, um, that were wonderful down, downstream. Nice. Love that. Well, and I think it's important too, to take, there are best practices regardless of your industry. And then there's your unique factor that you bring to the table that people are appealing to. Cause I mean, if you look at Chili's and say Applebee's or something like that, like you expect two totally different experiences. I mean, I still expect to get food in a half decent <laughs> time. I still expect to have good food. Um, yeah. But my experience definition of what good is when I walk in there is going to be completely different. You know, I want Applebee's. I want mom's apple pie. When I go into Chili's, I want hot Mexican food kind of thing. And yeah. like, as a general, I'm very dumbed down examples, but still, those are two yeah. very different experiences within. And that. those are like with, within that, within the restaurant experience, there's, this is a, maybe the pun, the worst pun, but it's table stakes. Like it's just, <laughs> I expect to be fed and have good, good food. Yeah. You're a restaurant. Um, <laughs> but then there are those differentiating factors that make you special, make your brand a delight that make people want to come back again, again, and again. And often it's naughty. It's very, it's, those aren't the functional things. Mm -hmm. It's often the things that don't have anything to do with your business. So it has nothing, it's probably has nothing to do with food. probably has nothing to do with the restaurant experience. It's something else that on surface, if an alien species came down and saw a restaurant was doing this weird practice that had, it was totally superfluous or a waste of time, they'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't. Humans don't make any sense. <laughs> so back sort of full circle, back to humans and, and our irrationality, you have to account for that because once you account for that, you know, hmm, this is how we deliver the best possible customer experience. So from and a completely blind, insane kind of perspective, Applebee's might have their rooms cooler so that you appreciate the heat of the hot apple pie and Chili's might be warmer so that it feels like you're going into Mexico and you're having this warm go. exotic experience. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Thinking like a behavioral scientist. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Wow. I could, I could be an undergraduate yet. There's <laughs> yeah. a PhD down the line for you. Right. So what are some of the stumbling blocks that an entrepreneur might be having right now in their business it might be, you know, they're launching something, they're having a, their clientele is going down, something like that. What kind of stumbling blocks are they experiencing where they're thinking, oh my God, Nick, we need you so badly. I would say, and this may be counterintuitive, don't listen to your customers which sounds silly. And I, I don't mean don't ignore your customers. Customers are the basis of why you exist. We know that. But be very careful about how you listen to them and how you surface the data and the insights from those customers. So we know that people, human beings, one of the reasons why we're so silly and irrational is we don't know how to say 
how we're feeling, how we're truly feeling. So if you say, you know, hey, Nick, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How do you feel about this experience? I'm not going to be able to tell you. Some Maybe I will because I'm pretty good at it, but most times we're going to say something, we're going to blurt something out, and then we're going to post hoc rationalize why I just said that thing so that it's logically coherent and makes sense in our conversation. But we're really bad at introspecting. So And so are your customers, which means if you just sit down and do a focus group, let's say, and say, hey, um, what do you think about this product? What do you think about the service? What do you think about the overall experience? And they just tell you that's biased data, um, which means that's biased insights, which means if you take action on that, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your money. So we need tools. We need the right type of tool like, like Apex or like there's, there's tons of different ones in the marketplace that leverage AI, that leverage technology, smart technology, smart product application to reveal or surface the true inner preferences, desires, and behaviors of customers. And it's that sort of perfect combination of, yes, hearing what the customer has to say, what they want, what they, what they think, or what they've thought, but getting that information in the most accurate, robust, and rigorous way. And that's where science and, and technology comes in. Right. So if somebody's doing a product launch or they're experiencing kind of a decline in sales and revenue, if they're, um, if they're just wanting to expand and, and increase their marketplace, those would be good reasons to reach out to you, yes? Absolutely. All of those. Yeah. <laughs> so I know our listeners are going to want more from you. How did they start their journey with you? They can go to apexscore.ai to visit us and uh, just poke around the website. There's all sorts of different CTAs and calls to action if they want to get in touch with the team. If they want to get in touch with me personally, they can uh, find me. On, I'm very active on LinkedIn, on LinkedIn. Uh, not Twitter, but just LinkedIn. And uh, And yeah, that's where I'm sort of hanging out most of the time. So we will, of course, have next links in the show notes. So go ahead and scroll down and click on those links. Be sure to open them up in another browser because we're not done yet. So I get to ask you, at what point in life did you know that you were a special kind of crazy enough to think that you could become an entrepreneur? <laughs> um, after academia, when I left academia, I... Um, I entered into the corporate world of management consulting and I lasted three and a half months and I absolutely hated it because it was a space where all creativity was just shut right down uh, in service of corporate BS, that, that, that kind of BS. Um, and it was right after that, that I went into business for myself, that I started working with entrepreneurs, that I started working with startups. Because that, I mean, it's just my own personal preference. No, no, nothing against people who end up going into that other, you know, that other path of, of big corporate. Um, it was just my own personality. It was a fit thing. I need to build. I need to create the zero to one fit experiences products. And it's the most, for me and for probably all of your listeners, obviously, it's the most exciting calling, if, I'll, if I can refer to that, or, or, or mission or vocation that allows people like us to get up every day and, and, you know, sit down at the desk, open the laptop and, and put another eight hours of, of work in because we love to build and we love to create. And that is a, a part of the human condition that is as old as human, the human species is to build and create and, 
and to and to, and to, and to build it with others as well. There's sort of a social element there as well. Um, but yeah, that's that's why. I love it. Well, and I also heard from a little bird that you've been on two episodes of William Shatner's The Unexplained. <laughs> How yeah. is that? It was it was quite the experience. Yeah. So it's the show. If people haven't seen it, William Shatner's the host, and it's all these sort of like mysteries of the universe or the human condition that can't be explained um and, and As three uh, months ago anyway <laughs> yeah yeah so they called me up this is years ago and they called me up and they said uh do you want to do this filming the show it's it's in LA you'll be flown in for like a two-hour filming and then we'll fly you back and I was, and I was like okay sure and I paid for everything and and I thought I was going to be able to meet him but alas he was not there uh, but the whole experience was quite something like they, it was like fully, you know, fully produced and they rented a beautiful mansion in the Hollywood Hills for like the backdrop and the background. Um, but funny, they kept asking me like, but it's a mystery, right? It's a mystery, right? Like there's some sort of like supernatural element. I was like, you got the wrong guy. Like I'm a scientist. I'm, I'm basically giving you every sort of like scientific explanation. <laughs> So they cut a lot, uh, but I ended up still making it in the uh, in the show, which was which was good fun. That's funny. Well, and for a show with William Shatner in it, you'd ex you'd expect that it's all tech and science. <laughs> I would expect that it's all tech and science. Going, no, we pretty much got this down pat. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, no, no, there's a good explanation for that. And they're like, cut. No, no, yeah. more mystery. <laughs> yeah, you're not getting the whole point of this. That's awesome. I love it. You've been absolutely awesome. Any last words for our peeps? Oh, uh, well, thank you, Michelle, for having, for having me. It's been good. It's been good fun. Um, just remember, I would say that uh, humans are a fascinating bunch and don't, don't take us, don't take for granted why we do what we do. Um, and speaking, speaking of mystery, there's always good scientific explanation, but on the, on the surface, it really is quite a mystery why humans do what we do and why we make the decisions we, we make. Um, so always just be, um, be sort of dazzled and, 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 and in awe of, of, of humans and human behavior. Love it. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I know how valuable it is. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Awesome. This is Michelle Nedelec. Thank you for being here with us today. Be sure to subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. We love helping entrepreneurs grow. Are you running a business over seven figures, but still struggling with technology headaches? Pay attention. You do not want to miss this offer. This podcast episode is brought to you by Awareness Strategies, who is offering a custom-built digital adoption roadmap for anyone running a business over seven figures who's wanting to grow their business in the next five years. And it's not just a roadmap. They offer full implementation as well. If that scares the out of you, check out awarenessstrategies.com forward slash roadmap for more details today. The link's in the show's notes. Don't regret not doing this. Do it now. That's awarenessstrategies.com slash roadmap.